Welcome to episode 28 of the Rainbow Pridecast. I'm your host, Danielle Dupuis, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. Co-hosting with me today is... Uma Ribeiro, and I use the pronouns she, her, hers. And today we are joined by Eric Marcus, author, journalist, and founder of the Making Gay History podcast. Welcome to the Pridecast, Eric. Delighted to be with you today. So I have to tell you, um, I stumbled upon your podcast uh, after interviewing uh, Dr. Dana Beyer uh, in episode 25 last month of our podcast, and I was uh, looking for some resources to use to include on our website to help people better understand many of the issues and people that she spoke about in, in her episode. And one of them was uh, Frank Kameny, who I personally knew nothing about. I'm kind of a little bit appalled about how little I do know about my gay history. Um, and then I found your podcast where you actually interviewed him. And I was just kind of like blown away. I was just like, oh my God, like not only do I have information about him, but this is like legit, like the real thing where I can hear it and, you know, kind of actually felt like I was there. Um, and I figured, you know, it'd be worth the inquiry to see if you would be willing to come and talk to us. And, um, and then I started flipping through and listening to your podcast with all those different LGBTQ folks from history. And I mean, just hearing that, I mean, it's, it's so amazing. I was just, just amazed. I, I absolutely love it. Thank you for all the kind words. I actually, I got to sit across the table from all of these people, which was extraordinary. And Frank Kameny, um, for those who don't know, and you really shouldn't, there's no reason that you would have known this history. It's not, it, it hasn't until recently been taught in school. So mm-hmm. I, and when I started doing my research in 1988, I knew none of this history. I knew about Stonewall, sort of. Um, I didn't know that there was any history prior to Stonewall. Um, in fact, the movement dates back to 1950 in the U.S. There was a short-lived organization founded in 1924 in Chicago, and the first gay rights organization in the world was founded in 1897 in Berlin. It's like, did any of us learn any of that? So this is all this was all new to me when I started doing my work. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. I mean, how did you, so can you tell us a little bit, I mean, how did you even acquire so many contacts with these people and have the opportunity to record them. And I, and I know all of them are not specifically you recording them. You, you um, are kind of pulling from, I believe, was it the New York archives? Um, um, well, we've pulled, it's, they're principally from my own archive, uh, but we've also drawn interviews from the New York Public Library. Uh, this season, we're in partnership with the Studs Terkel Radio Archive in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. They have thousands of interviews, some of them uh, with LGBTQ folks uh, from across the decades. Um, but I, I did all of my interviews because I was commissioned to write a book, an oral history of what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Movement. I got mm-hmm. a call from an editor at a company called Harper and Row, it's now HarperCollins, when I was working at CBS News. And um, I was asked if I would consider writing an oral history of the movement, to which I said, I don't know anything about it. I'm not an academic, why me? And the editor, who was a friend of mine, said, well, I liked your first book, which was called The Male Couple's Guide, and how you did interviews with with people there and how you dealt with dialogue. Um, And he said, I want someone who's fresh to the subject and not an academic. I want the book to be very readable. So that's how I set out to do all these interviews so I could use these stories to tell the history of our movement beginning in about 1945. Wow. And so you just, I guess, saved them and stored them and then... Yeah, and, well, the, the secret here was that I, and I thank my 30-year-old self every day for doing this, I thought to ask my boss at, at uh, CBS News, Jay Kernis, who had uh, been one of the creators of Morning Edition and Weekend Edition on NPR, said, what do your colleagues use to record interviews? 
And so he introduced me to one of his colleagues and I bought exactly what they were using in 1988. I must have figured that, and I don't remember exactly why I asked him this, but I must have figured that these interviews would, would have value someday to somebody that uh, a scholar might one day, you know, decades hence, might want to dip into my archive and, and use these interviews, having no expectation that I would be the, the person to be doing the interviews. I'm sorry, to be doing, to be using the interviews for my own podcast. Of course, there were no podcasts back then. So I saved all the, the cassette tapes. It was, a, they were in trays, very well ordered and six feet high. And in 2008, I donated my collection to the New York Public Library with an agreement that they digitized the whole collection, which they finally did in 2015. Wow. And is that when you started, when did you start the, the podcast? We launched in uh, October of 2016. I spent a year trying to figure out what to do with my archive. I was out of work. I'd been fired from, it's not, no fun being fired from a job. Um, I've been, it was the second time in my life that happened. And I was trying to figure out what to do next at age 55. And I read a book by one of my favorite uh, NPR correspondents who's now moved on from NPR. Um, Barbara Bradley Haggerty wrote a book called Life Reimagined, which is a book about how to figure out what to do next um, when you're in your in midlife. And uh, one of the things she said was to look at your assets and think about what you do best. And one of my assets was this huge archive of more than 100 interviews, 300 hours worth. And I had lots of conversations with people. One of those conversations was with an organization called History Unerased, and they were developing LGBTQ inclusive American history curricula. And they thought that short clips of my interviews would be great to anchor some of their lessons. Um, and then I hired my neighbor who had worked for the BBC and NPR in Arkansas, asked her if she could cut tape, which she said she could. And the goal was to create three to six minute pieces to anchor these lesson plans. And when Sarah Burningham, who was doing the editing, got down to about 15 to 18 minutes, she said, this sounds like a podcast. And to make a long story short, we launched just a few weeks later. Um, with a fully fledged website, because we wanted to have, I wanted to have um, background information on each of the people we interviewed and also archival photos so that students and anybody else who was interested in exploring more could do so. Um, now, I caution anyone who's interested in doing a podcast, five weeks is really not enough time to launch a podcast. Um, I, produce, <laughs> I produce a second podcast mm -hmm. called Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust which I do in, uh, in partnership with the Fortune Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies at Yale. And we spent two years developing the podcast. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to take that long, um, but I, I don't recommend five weeks. We were out of our minds. Um, we had a grant to do uh, the educational work. And part of the agreement was that, that we had to have something out in October of 2016. And at that point, when we thought we would do a podcast, we had five weeks left. So we, we did it and we did 10 episodes of the first season, not thinking we would do anything more, but uh, the, the podcast took off. Um, mm -hmm. We've now done, we're in the middle of our ninth season, it's four years later, um, and we've had 3.5 million episode downloads in 200 countries and territories around the world. That's crazy. Yes, it's great. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not, it's not hard to see why though. I mean, it, it's so good. I mean, I was just, um, last night I was kind of, uh, I, I get insomnia really badly. Um, and so I, I was up in the middle of the night and I'm like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to one of those podcasts. And it was just, you know, I was listening again and I just love the, you never, I would have never known like what these people sounded like. 
Yes. Well, that's one of the keys. And when I went back, it was the, my, my oral history book was a book. It's in print. And so you don't know what these people sound like and what the emotions are uh, in their voices. So I hadn't listened to any of these interviews in 30 years. Um, so to hear Sylvia Rivera's voice or, or uh, Dr. Evelyn Hooker or um, Jean Manford, all of these people who lived in my head in print because I'd worked on their episodes, but then to hear their voices again, it added such an ex so many extra dimensions to um, their stories and so much more emotion. And it was, I, I love how you kind of uh, uh, set the scene whether it was your interview or, um, you know, someone else that was conducting the interview, like kind of just like setting the scene for, you know, what's kind of going on around us. Yeah. My, my goal is, my goal in setting up the pieces is to bring you into the room with me. And I was only able to do that because, um, what I did was, uh, record. I'm sorry. What I did is I took notes after every one of, uh, my interviews so I would describe the room I was in and what people were wearing and what it smelled like and the time of year. Um, and where I didn't have detailed information, what I did was uh, I would go back online and research. So I had the person's address. I'd go and look at the, the outside of their house and do a, uh, do a Google Earth search um, to remind myself. Um, so I wanted you there in the room with me. That's exactly how I set up each of the interviews. Well, it definitely felt that way. Um, and I love... I. I even, I really appreciate too, that it's not completely silent around, you know, the people that are being interviewed and you can kind of hear like the size or the chairs being pushed in, um, or, you know, shuffling in the, uh, typing in the background. Yeah. Or, or, so, or someone, um, what I love is, um, when someone, uh, lit a cigarette. And yes, and you could. Yeah, I was just like, I think somebody's smoking right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people smoked. It was a long time ago. A lot of people smoked, and you, you'd hear the the flick of the match, and um, and then you'd hear them taking a deep breath in, and you mm -hmm. could imagine me suffering in a closed room with somebody smoking. Um, yes. I, oh, it was horrible. Um, that was horrible. that was the, one of the worst things about doing these <laughs> interviews all the heavy smokers. I just think that that's also very cool that you can hear all those little details. I think it just adds a very personal touch there. Yeah, we're not in a studio. And um, I, I tried to interview virtually everybody in their home. Um, so I got to sit across kitchen tables, uh, sit in, I sat in living rooms, um, on front porches. So, and with, mic with um, audio, unlike video, people forget that the microphone is there and it winds up being a very intimate conversation. Um, and because of the way you listen to a podcast, typically with earbuds, your brain thinks it's hearing the sound in the middle of your head. So it becomes a very, very intimate experience listening in on this conversation. It's, it really is as if you're there. There's one interview we did with um, uh, Shirley Willer, who lived in Key West, Florida, and she had all of these birds on her porch. And so you hear the birds in the background the whole time. But that made editing very difficult because you can't cut off a bird mid-tweet. You know, I should add, all of these interviews are, are edited quite quite heavily. Mm -hmm. Interviews from three to six hours down to 18 to 20 minutes. Will you will you ever release like the full three to six hour interviews? The uh, For people who want to research folks, they can go to the New York Public Library. Unfortunately, you have to go to the physical library to listen to the interviews. Um, I'm guessing one day I will release them or after I'm dead. 
Um, they'll all be made available publicly, but for the time being, yeah, and, and I'm not sure that, I mean, there are people who I'm not sure would, would have wanted their interviews released publicly. So I haven't dealt with that yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask you, you kind of brought it up about um, going to the people's home. So that means you traveled to kind of see and meet and interview each of those individuals? I did. Um, I think all but two of the, the hundred some odd interviews I did, I I traveled to people's homes. I had a pretty limited budget, so I didn't travel to that many places, but I tried to be strategic about it because I wanted to get a sense of what the movement was like in, in a number of parts of the country. It's The book isn't nearly as geographically diverse as I would have liked, um, which meant that my archive is not as, as diverse as I would have liked, which is why we've begun pulling interviews from other places um, so that uh, I can broaden the story. Uh, there are two that I'm really proud of that we found, uh, one with Ernestine Eckstein, an African-American woman who was involved with the Daughters of Belitis, a lesbian organization in the mid-1960s. Um, so it's a 1965 interview that our researcher, uh, that Sarah Birmingham, our producer, family producer and editor, found in the basement of the New York Public Library. And then our researcher, Brian Faree, found a 1970 reel-to-reel interview um, in the basement of the Lesbian Her Story Archives in New York it's the first known interview with Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, two trans icons and act activists. Um, so it's, it's, there's still, and also produced an episode featuring an interview with Bayard Rustin, who was Dr. Martin Luther King's mentor and the uh, principal organizer of the uh, 1963 March on, on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, who was gay and out, um, which caused all kinds of problems for him. And this was a, a 1987 interview that was on a cassette tape under in a box under his surviving partner's bed. Um, so you never know where you're going to find great tape. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, that just goes to show, like, you know, if people are out there and they're hoarders, like, you know, you can, it's kind of justified in some ways if you've got something really fabulous in that, in that stash. Yes, yes. And one of the most disappointing phone calls I had was from someone who did um, extensive interviews with a man named John Nichols, uh, who was, Jack Nichols, excuse me, who was involved uh, in the movement in the 1960s and 70s. And I said, well, how did you record it? Because in a podcast, you have to have reasonably good uh, audio quality. He said, oh, I held my tape recorder up to the phone. Thought, oh, oh, no, I can't use it. No. So. Oh, that's such a yeah. bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So my advice always to people who are doing interviews for schoolwork, use good equipment, use a good microphone, think about the, the sound in the background, if there's an air conditioner going, make sure it's off. If there's a construction job going on outside, find another, another space to do the interview. What's been your most memorable interview to date? Well, there were a few different, there, there are a few, a number of memorable interviews for different reasons. Um, Wendell Sayers, who uh, we did an episode with in the first season, uh, who's African-American in his mid-80s when I interviewed him. He told me a story about uh, what happened when he was 16. He was sent to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, because his father thought he was homosexual and wanted him to be evaluated. Um, his, that story is just, it blew my mind. Um, and then he, and he was uh, the first uh, African-American to work for the Attorney General in Colorado in the 1960s and was involved briefly in the movement, but at great risk to his, to his livelihood. Um, and when I was leaving his house, he said, do you think it's too late for me to meet somebody? And here he was in his mid eighties, 
very much alone. He had two friends at church who he had been out to, um, but they both died of AIDS. And he just, he, he didn't want to be alone the rest of his life. And, and when he said, do you think it's too late for me to meet someone? I thought, well, it, it probably is, but I didn't want to tell him that. So I lied and I said, no, it's never too late. But I'm pretty sure he spent the rest of his life alone. So that was one very memorable interview. And then I got to interview Dear Abby. And Dear Abby was a columnist, an advice columnist. We don't, we don't have anybody like that anymore. But if you took Ellen DeGeneres when everyone was still in love with Ellen and wrapped her up with Oprah Winfrey and every major Instagram influencer walking the earth, they would not add up to Dear Abby and her influence on the world. Um, Abby had millions of, of readers every day in newspapers around the world. And people would write to her for advice. And so, and she came out very early as, a, as an LGBTQ ally in the 1960s. So going to meet her, and she was on all the talk shows. She was as famous as anybody. So uh, my mother read her, my grandmother read her, I read her. So when I went to her house in Beverly Hills, California, and pulled up in front of her house, I was very nervous and so excited to meet her. Um, and she greeted me at the front door wearing lavender hostess pajamas. Nobody wears those anymore. They're really just fancy pajamas, um, pink fluffy slippers, and she'd had her hair done and her makeup was all done. And she uh, opened the door herself and, and, I, and I said, hello. <laughs> and I said, and she said, uh, hello, Eric. And I said, well, what shall I call you? She said, oh, just call me Abby. Um, and couldn't have been more gracious. Um, but then there are interviews I remember because they were so moving. Um, I interviewed a number of gay men who were dying from AIDS um, and who reflected on their lives, knowing that they weren't going to be around much longer and they were young. Um, so just a range of experiences. So many of them were memorable. So no one favorite, but, but many memorable experiences. When one time my partner and I went to, uh, my, actually my husband and I, 20 some odd years ago, went to Los Angeles and we went to dinner with Abby and her daughter, Jeannie, and their spouses. Um, and Jeannie took over her mother's column and now writes the Dear Abby column. Okay. Um, so it was absolutely thrilling. I'm sure you have a, a like, you could probably talk for <laughs> weeks on, like, all the different interesting stories and people that you've encountered. I have stories on every single one of the people I interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't like all of them. Yeah, I didn't like all of them, I should add, you know. Um, I like most of them, but but there were a couple of people who pissed me off. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you want to share that or no? <laughs> oh, sure. One of them was uh, um, one of the founders of the Madison Society, uh, one of the principal architects behind the organization and its, uh, um, uh, and its, and its uh, goals, a man named Harry Hay. Um, he was just a difficult interview. He would not answer my questions. No matter what I tried to do to interrupt him, he knew exactly what he was going to tell me, which for an interviewer is very frustrating. I needed him to tell me a certain story. He wasn't interested in telling me about how the Madison Society was founded. He was interested in telling me what he wanted to tell me. He also gave me a kiss on the lips, which I did not invite, which mm -hmm. I found very offensive. Um, mm -hmm. So he pissed me off in two ways. So he wound up not, I didn't include him in the book. Um, I had other people who told the story better. And when I revisited his interview uh, decades later, when we were thinking about using him for the podcast, it turned out he had very important things to say. And by then I wasn't so pissed off at him kissing me without asking, without asking permission. 
Um, and I didn't care as much anymore that he didn't let me ask the questions. He had some important things to say, so I included him in the podcast. I was going to ask you what inspired you to write the book, um, Making History, but, but that was a commission. Yeah, I was commissioned to write the book, and, and uh, it was called Making History. We, we didn't put the word gay in until 10 years later because there was some concern about the sales force, uh, their comfort in selling a book with gay in the title and whether bookstores would would shelve the book face out if it had the word gay in the title. Ten years later, the world had changed a lot when I did the second edition and we put the word gay in, in the title. Um, but part of my decision to do the book had to do with the prejudice I found at CBS News in 1988. I was a producer, an a segment producer, and I was very interested in working on the other side of the camera, being an on-camera news person. And um, there were no out national news people in those days. No, uh, not on camera. And so I asked for a meeting with a senior executive um, who graduated from the same college that I did 10 years prior. So I, I knew I could get a meeting with her and she made those decisions. And so I asked her, and I was out by that point, my first book had been published. And I asked her if CBS News would ever put um, an openly gay person on air um, as a national correspondent. And after a lot of back and forth, because she didn't want to give me an answer, I said, look, I really need to know for my career. Um, will you ever do that? And she said, no, we won't. So I knew that the opportunities at CBS were limited. And I got this call to have this opportunity to write this book. And I asked my then partner if, uh, um, if we could afford for me to take the summer off because there was no guarantee they were going to buy the book. They asked for a proposal. And we agreed that I would take the summer off, write the proposal and see what happened. Um, and they bought the book. And that was the beginning of my, my, well, I shouldn't say the beginning was my second book, but it was, I never went back to work for, uh, for a company until 2014, 2014. Yes. When I went to work for the American foundation for suicide prevention for a year and a half before they fired me. So um, I worked on the, I was on the national board of the American Foundation for Suicide for four years. I was very interested in the subject and wrote a book about suicide, uh, a question and answer book, principally for people who've lost someone to suicide because my dad killed himself when I was 12. And so I joined the, I was invited to join the board of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, and then when there was an opportunity to join the staff, I took a job overseeing all of the organization's programs for people who, um, uh, had lost someone to suicide. And I was there for 18 months um, and they were about as happy with me as I was with them. <laughs> we parted ways. Um, it was rather unceremonious, but uh, uh, they wished me well, I wished them well. And it turned out to be the best. You know, at the time, it was really traumatic to be fired from, from there because the, the work meant so much to me. And um, my partner said to me, my husband said to me, look, you know how it is. Sometimes it's the best thing that can happen. And it's People say that to be of comfort, and it turned out it was the best thing that ever happened because it propelled me back into the work that had proved, that was so rewarding to me earlier in life, and it gave birth to the podcast and now a play. There's a Making Gay History play, which had its world high school premiere at Deerfield High School in uh, outside of Chicago just last week. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's Thank awesome. you. Thank you. So for any of the high school students or theater teachers listening in, um, we now have a Making Gay History play that we are really excited about licensing to high schools, colleges, and community groups. So that's what happened with that job. I still um, uh, have some involvement with, with suicide work, but it's also very challenging 
work dealing with people who have just been through a suicide of a loved one. Uh, so mostly my involvement now is I get, I'll get a call from a friend or from a family member about someone they know who's been through the, su the suicide of a loved one and they'll ask me for advice on what to do or I'll talk to the person who's just been through the suicide loss. I know that was a very personal um, book for you to write. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it, when you talked, when you just mentioned about, I didn't realize that you had worked for American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, we had just at our Rainbow Conference uh, in May, we actually had a presenter from American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, and I know that I'm fairly certain that at least on some level, whether it's we know someone personally or someone of someone else, that um, at some point in our lives we'll experience somebody that has experienced suicide on some level. Yes. Um, and um, very recently, uh, Trevor Project uh, kind of put out some findings showing that two out of every five um, LGBTQ plus youth have seriously considered suicide just in this last year. Um, and I, I think, you know, and, and some colleagues and I were actually just in discussion about this uh, last week about how there's a lack of education or direction or even focus on specifically LGBTQ plus youth and uh, LGBTQ plus people in general and suicide. Um, do you have any suggestions for uh, families, educators, or school systems on how we can help address these issues in order to save save lives? Yeah, I, the, the challenge with suicide prevention is that when someone is in a suicidal crisis, it's really late in, uh, in, in along the, the curve as someone is, is reaching the point of wanting to kill themselves. Mm -hmm. that, that it's really important to reach people way upstream when they're suffering from depression or feeling isolated. Mm -hmm. And for men, so many LGBTQ youth, there's a great sense of isolation, feeling that they're, only, they're the only one. They don't uh, have anyone they can talk to um, about their feelings. Um, and it turns out that teaching uh, uh, American history that's LGBTQ inclusive is very helpful for young people to have a good sense of themselves and knowing their history and where they fit, in, where they fit into history. So if I had known when I was a young person that I had ancestors and a, that I had a proud history, it would have made a very big difference in my life. Um, but a key is, and I hear a lot from young people who, who feel very isolated, and my goal is always to put them in touch with a local community organization, a gay youth group, um, a, a trusted adult who they can talk to. So uh, that, I think, is key, is to make sure that LGBTQ youth feel welcome and that they have uh, people they can talk to, and that if they... Uh, have mental health issues, that there are people for them to speak with. The problem is for all, all youth, not just LGBTQ youth, uh, mental health care in the U.S. sucks to not put a, a too fine a point on it. Um, not so great for adults either. Um, so to, 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 to one of the things that we used to say at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is if someone is in a suicidal crisis or someone is depressed, they should get help. Well, easier said than done. Um, I had a mother who was suicidal, and I remember my experience with trying to get her help, um, and it wasn't easy. Um, insurance doesn't cover a lot of stuff. Um, there aren't a lot of resources. They can be found, but it's a lot of hard work, um, especially when someone is in a suicidal crisis, to uh, get them to a place um, where they can be helped. Um, so I don't think there are easy answers, 
But for LGBTQ youth specifically, the goal is to help them feel less hopeless, to feel uh, help them feel appreciated and included. Um, so uh, those are my basic thoughts on, on that subject. And one way to help them feel like they aren't all alone in the world is to teach American history that is LGBTQ inclusive so they can see themselves throughout history. Mm -hmm. I completely agree on uh, on that. Yeah. I feel like we've... Uh we've been given a very limited view of American history for far too long. Um, oh, and yeah, all yeah. fronts. Yes. No, I, I remember Thanksgiving as it was presented when I was in elementary school and, and uh, we covered how the West was won and without indicating that we won the West by, by committing genocide. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, I was on and on. We, you know, there's so many things we didn't learn about. Uh, we were taught the fairy tale of American history, which is, uh, you know, it's not, it's not right. Um, we should yeah. be taught the whole story and, uh, um, and not a fantasy of, 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 a, of a falsely patriotic history that has nothing to do with the reality of, of how this country came about because it doesn't allow us to address the problems that we face. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know, for example, that President Eisenhower who was one of the heroes of World War II, um, signed an executive order in 1953 banning gay people from federal employment. That included people in the military. And thousands of gay people were hounded out of their jobs. Many killed themselves because they couldn't find work again. It was just, it, uh, there's a new documentary out called Cured. Um, I'm sorry, I mean, there's, there's that one too, but no, it's called The Lavender Scare. And it's all about that period. It was, a, it was concurrent to the Red Scare when lots of people were accused of being communists and fired from their jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't learn about that. Um, and, it's, and it's not as if, uh, it's not like there's a separate LGBTQ American history. It's threaded throughout American history. It's just that it hasn't been, uh, what, what we have to do is unerase that history. It's been erased in the history books. I think when you realize that um, history is different than what you were taught, it's unsettling in a lot of ways. Um, things that we've come to appreciate and how we've come to acquire them, it's unsettling. Um, you know, I just, uh, my daughter and I uh, do a lot of uh, national park exploring and uh, we went to uh, Shenandoah uh, national park and you know it's very beautiful and um you know you go into the visitor center and you're watching the the video about how shenandoah came to be and come to find out like you know it was inhabited by people and they were forced out by the government like and they were you know basically had nothing yeah it's um, like that's horrible yeah you know? and, they were, and they were lucky if they got out with their lives exactly yeah um, so there's a lot of uh and I appreciated, though, that the Park Service didn't gloss over that, though. The Park Service is getting better and better and better about, about history. In fact, there's new, a new national park, the Stonewall National Monument here in New York yes. City. And I was yes. very involved in helping um, with what they call, oh, what do they call it? Um, it's essentially how to talk about the particular monument. And I mm -hmm. participated in a scholars roundtable where a number of people were, were brought in to talk about uh how they should portray this uh, uh, monument and explain the history. Um, it's an extremely impressive process, um, extremely impressive. We kept waiting for something to happen during the Trump administration that they, they try to roll back that national monument. 
but I think LGBTQ people have become such a force uh, already that they didn't dare touch it. Um, and thankfully, uh, thankfully, the monument is, remains. And it's, uh, um, and I feel very proud for having had a role in helping the National Park Service figure out how to talk about the Stonewall National Monument. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, there'll be more. Do you know if there's any plans for yes. you know, more LGBTQ plus focused monuments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are lots of sites that have been identified. There's an organization here in New York that's just focused on New York City sites called the NYC LGBT Historic Sites Project. Oh, cool. And they've, they've identified hundreds of, of LGBTQ related sites, historic sites. Oh, wow. I wish they could have uh, identified our local nightclubs here in Baltimore before they were shut down and turned into like a CVS. Yeah. Well, what, 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 there, there are people around the country doing studies about this. And there was a national study done, um, and I'm forgetting exactly what it was called, but you can find it through the National Park Service website, uh, where there was a study done of, of potential sites all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and the study is about is as thick as an old-fashioned telephone book. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, that's so cool. See, like all this stuff, like you just don't know. People don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm curious. Are you going back, going out, and conducting, you know, more interviews now, or do you have plans for like revising the book or adding in additional interviews to the podcast? Well, I'm I'm not gonna. I have no plans to write another book. It's a little hard to imagine doing another book. I actually hate writing, um, which is a little crazy. I've done a dozen books, but I've never liked it, and it's a very lonely process. I love the collaborative process of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So we've done we've done an occasional new interview for the podcast um, when we've needed someone to fill in background on somebody. So, for mm-hmm. example, when we did um, our episode on Ernestine Eckstein, we interviewed Marsha Gallo, who's a specialist on the Daughters of Belitis, the organization Ernestine was involved in. So we incorporated some of her interview into that episode. Um, I also do an Instagram program. We call it mm-hmm. The Listening Room. And I've done nearly 30 interviews. And those are principally with people who have some um, connection to one of the episodes we're doing. So for example, I did an inter- uh, we did an episode from the Seth Churkle archive. We pulled an interview with, um, uh, what is his name? Um, Christopher Isherwood, the famous writer. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I interviewed, and Christopher's been long dead. Um, I, he died 30 years ago. I interviewed Don Bacardi, his surviving partner. And so we did an interview with him and that's on our Instagram account, which is Making Gay History Podcast. So those are new interviews that I do. They're usually about 30 minutes and, and they reference a specific episode. Um, but many people have asked if I'm going to continue to grow the archive. It's a very costly process to do it and very time consuming. And I don't have the funds or the bandwidth to do it. Um, and there are a lot of people now across the country who are building oral history archives in their communities. So I encourage young people to do this. Um, I really enjoy dealing with the past. Um, so I'm, I, while I like doing interviews, I'm not as keen on doing, on expanding my archive. Um, we will, for next spring's uh, season uh, of Making a History, season 10, um, we're, we're going to do, or now I forget if we're in season eight or season nine. Um, I can't keep track of my own work. Um, maybe it's season nine. Um, we're going to do a season on the AIDS crisis. It's the 40th anniversary next July 3rd of the first article published in the New York Times about a disease that became AIDS. Um, and it's going to be, um, a, I'm going to take listeners through the, the AIDS crisis through a personal lens. It'll be my oral history and also drawing on my archive. 
So I'll be interviewing people for that who I met along the way um, back in the late 1980s, actually back in the 1980s from the early 80s through the early 1990s. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I'm not really looking forward to because it was a terribly painful period of history for me personally. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm really glad that we've come a long way uh, since then in uh, medicine and- uh, We have, but look at where we are now. I know. Uh, and, I know. We, and so many of the lessons that we learned and should have learned from the AIDS crisis, we seem not to have learned. Right. You know, the government, I mean, the government then was just as pathetic in taking the leadership role as it was this time for different reasons. But, right. um, but it, it, both pandemics uh, demonstrate why it's important for there to be national leadership when there is a health crisis like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. But at least with AIDS, when I was a kid um, in my 20s, if you were diagnosed with AIDS, it was a death sentence. Yeah. Uh, the death rate was 90 to 95% if you were infected with HIV. Mm -hmm. So worse than Ebola. Yes. Yeah, so it was terrifying. Um, yeah, I have uh, several friends um, that, you know, have been on, uh, you know, medicine that, you know, they lead a normal life and yeah. I mean, I guess there's probably still that in the back of their mind, probably still, you know, like what if it doesn't work or stops working, but, um, but yeah, they've been doing really well. Yeah. And not, and not everybody um, can tolerate the medications. I was surprised the other day I saw that there's still you know, more than a thousand deaths a year from oh, really? uh, for people who have, yeah. For people who have AIDS. Yeah. I mean, it's either maybe they didn't take medication or the medication. They couldn't tolerate the medication. Um, or they had complications of some kind. Yeah. People still die. I remember when I um, saw the movie Philadelphia for the yes. first time, that was, that was really eye opening for me as a kid. Cause I, I wasn't really aware, you know, of how serious it was, you know? Right. Right. Well, and it was so concentrated among gay men in particular that, that, that unless you had someone in your family um, right. uh, or a friend, it was something that, that didn't touch people, as many people as certainly as COVID has. Um, I remember watching the Philadelphia, Philadelphia, which starred Tom Hanks. And it was such a weird movie because the, 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 there were two, it was a couple, a gay couple. And they interacted almost as if they were just buddies. They hardly touched each other. And it was, but it was the times, you know, they didn't, didn't feel comfortable portraying a, a male couple relationship as it really is. I thought, well, okay, you know, they're waiting for them to punch each other on the shoulder because that's, you know, that's how guys behave. Um, but it certainly isn't how a male couple behaves. Right. Um, and, you know, I feel like the film industry is getting better about that too and hiring, you know, actual LGBTQ actors to sure, portray sure. LGBTQ plus characters. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, there, and there are so many independent films now that portray gay people accurately. How do you decide on the person you will focus on for each podcast episode? Well, it, it changed It changed over the seasons. The first season, we just picked out 10 people who are my favorites um, <laughs> to just give a taste of what the archive was. And then we had themes for each season after that. So when we did the preview episode for each season, we explained what the theme is for that season. Um, and then this season, for example, we're just focused on interviews drawn from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive. Um, and then next season is going to be focused on AIDS. Um, an earlier season was focused on the 1970s. 
Um, and um, so it's just, you know, we talk, we wouldn't you know, have a meeting and talk about what we might want to focus on for that season. And I'm thinking possibly for the fall of 2021, we'll go back into my archive and just pull some random interviews that we haven't done before. And it'll just be a, uh, just dipping into the archive again. Very cool. Um, so I'm a student journalist myself. I've been, this is my third year in my journalism class in school. Um, and I, I write on the side. Um, and I'm just wondering, what were your interests as a kid and a student that led you to becoming both a historian and a journalist yourself? Well, um, I was originally interested in writing about, I started out wanting to be an architect or an urban planner. Um, and I went to work for an architecture firm, uh, actually didn't like the profession, but I decided that I wanted to write about architecture. So my first articles were about architecture. Um, but then I found buildings kind of boring to write about, and I actually liked interviewing people. So um, that's when I decided I would go back to, to school. I got a master's degree in journalism. Um, and while I was in journalism school, I did a couple of gay stories. I did one on AIDS and I did um, actually two on AIDS, one on, on where, where we were at the AIDS crisis in the 1983. And then I did an interview with um, a nun who worked at St. Vincent's Hospital here in New York. The hospital no longer exists. And she provided counseling to gay men whose partners had died from AIDS. It was a fascinating story. Um, and I just got really curious. But for me, it was I wrote about what was, uh, what was really personal to me. Um, I got passionate about um, gay issues because it affected me directly. And, um, uh, and I also thought I was the best person to write about, the, about those things um, because I could write from from perspective of someone who knew something about the subject. Um, so I've written on a lot of different subjects, but almost all the things I've written about in, 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 uh, in the last few decades has been uh, LGBTQ related or suicide related. Um, I'm not a general interest reporter. Um, uh, I, I do like writing about urban issues too. I wrote an article about bike lanes in New York City. I do a weekly na uh, newsletter in my neighborhood, um, and, and I have through the whole COVID crisis. And I cover everything from who's shopping where to um, who needs something and what restaurant is open or closed. And I actually love producing what is essentially a little newspaper every week. Yeah, so my suggestion to anyone just starting out in journalism is write, write about what you're interested in. Um, yeah. And develop an expertise, you know. Um, and I often say to people who, uh, who are thinking about studying journalism, you know, in college, the best thing I think to do is develop a specialty. Become expert in something. So become a history major or a poli-sci major. And then if you want to go on to study journalism for your master's degree, um, actually, you don't even need a master's degree. You go to work as a journalist, although it's a very tough profession these days to get to get work in, um, but become expert in something. So often I deal with reporters who write on gay issues who don't know anything. And it's just so frustrating because often they get a lot wrong and there's so much they don't know because it isn't taught in school. And I find them having to explain things from scratch and it drives me up a wall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree to write about what you know, um, even though, you know, I do very much enjoy the re the research aspect of journalism, but I just personally love editorials because I can write what I know and I can write with passion um, about so many issues. Yeah, I love writing editorials too. I, um, I wrote two, 
I wrote one in 1992 and one in 93 for Newsweek magazine, when Newsweek was a big national magazine um, on gay issues specifically. Um, and I, it was great. You get to say what you're feeling. Um, it was great. So you do. You must like writing a a, a little bit then, to with all the uh, all of the extra uh, newsletters and um, and things. Well, um, I joke that I like having written. Okay. <laughs> um, which is different from actually writing writing. Um, right. So I I what I liked was I remember seeing my my name in uh, a byline for the first time. Um, it was a, a sort of accidental project in 1981 for a book called The Hip Pocket Guide to New York City. So, um, so I, I initially liked I liked seeing my name in print. I have a big ego, um, and uh, yeah, that's that's. So I, I I yeah I guess you've cornered me. I guess there are I do like <laughs> writing. I like writing sometimes, and when I'm in the flow, when I'm in the middle of it. Um, I can I, I really get into it, but I get terribly anxious whenever I've got a blank page. And that's what I hate about writing. It's the anxiety of, oh my God, can I do this again? Do I have can I write? Can I am I am I can I do this? And I get I wind up with terrible self-doubt. So it's like having stage fright. Mm-hmm. Um so just to add a little bit to your ego, or maybe not, I don't know. Um, but I recognized so I, I didn't put two and two together at first, but then um, I recognized one of your your books, which is, um, is it a choice? And yes. it dawned on me, I actually used that book um, in high school when I wrote a research paper in my sociology class. Wow. I know. <laughs> so um, I looked to see if I still had it. Um, I, I don't because uh-huh. I... Uh, sadly go through and, and periodically recycle stuff that I don't oh, I think do, that I'm I, ever going to need again. And I obviously, do the same thing. I do the same thing. You know. well, I wrote that book because it was the book that I wished I had found on the shelves when I was a sociology student my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, so you used it exactly as I hoped someone would use it. So there you go. Um, oh, so it was, you know, it was helpful. So you, you've done a, several self-help books, but then I, I call them self-help books because I, yeah. I would read them for self-help. Yeah. Um, and, um, but you also happen to be a co-author of um, Breaking the Surface. So I'm just a little bit curious about that because it kind of, it doesn't necessarily fit so much with everything else that you've done. Um, yeah. How did you happen to get into that with Greg Luganis? Yeah, he's a, so for those who, who are listening who don't know who he is because his story now is quite old, um, Greg was the uh, all-time uh, greatest Olympic diver. Um, he won four gold medals. Uh, he won medals in 84 and 88 at the Olympics. Uh, he won a silver in 76 when he was only 16 years old. And then the, we didn't uh, go to the Olympics in 1980 because um, Russia had invaded Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote an auto... I, I, uh, I needed work, is what it came down to. I needed work uh, back in uh, 1980. What year was that? Um, in the late, uh, in the early 90s. And um, I approached, uh, I can't, actually, my name's not on the book. So I did an autobiography of a gay couple. Um, I ghost wrote it. Um, yeah, okay. And so I had experience doing that once. And then when I heard from a friend that Greg Luganis was interested in writing his autobiography, Greg was a hero of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I want to write his book and I was very good. I'm very good at writing other in other people's voices. 
So in, in making history, in the Making Day History, the two editions of my history book, I wrote in the voices of more than 60 different people. Oh, wow. So like a ventriloquist, I can write in other people's voices. So I tracked Greg down and um, uh, had the idea that this story was going to be about Greg, Greg's uh, career and having to be in the closet and uh, he was going to come out in the book. I had no idea he had AIDS. I didn't find that out until we started working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was a mad dash to try to get the book published before, finished and published before he died. Because at the time I was working with him, um, it was prior to the, the uh, cocktail that has made it possible for people to live with HIV. Um, but fortunately, he survived. Um, mm-hmm. So that's how I came to do that book. And then I uh, needed to make a living and I was good at writing other people's books. So I wound up writing two more autobiographies. I wrote the autobiography of Rudy Galindo um, called Icebreaker. He was a U.S. figure skating champion, gay also. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote um, the autobiography, uh, or co-wrote, I should say, the autobiography of uh, Robbie Rogers, uh, the, the um, American soccer player. And his book is called uh, Coming Out to Play. Um, oh, cool. But I think, I've, I think I've written my last autobiography. I also ghostwrote a political autobiography, which was the most miserable experience I've ever had. So um, <laughs> the politician was not somebody I liked. So <laughs> I, I don't think I'll ever do one of those books again but you never know you never know yeah so a sports theme so i'm guessing are you a sports guy not at all not at all that was one of the ironies I, I knew nothing about olympic diving other than watching it i knew nothing about figure skating other than watching it same thing with soccer but with soccer i decided i better better learn a little something so i went to um uh, leeds in the uk where uh, robbie rogers had played so I could be in the stadium to see what it felt like. Um, mm-hmm. And that was actually, I, I loved it. That was that was really fun research for a project. Oh, neat. Yeah. So any plans of maybe getting like Tom Daly or? <laughs> um, if he called, I wouldn't say no. Okay. Um, but I, uh, I think he's already done his autobiography. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was thinking more, I was thinking actually more along the lines of a podcast. Maybe you can do a joint podcast, you know. Maybe. Well, I've talked with Greg about a podcast. I have 60 hours of interviews with Greg. Oh, nice. Um, and I actually pitched the idea of doing a multi-part docu- uh, audio documentary drawing on those 25-year-old tapes. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So how long does it take you to produce like one episode of the of the uh, Gay History podcast? Have a, I have a team that I work with and to produce the, pod, the audio podcast, the audio piece and the online and... So I have a researcher, a photo editor, um, an audio editor, and then a, a, a co-producer who manages the whole project. Um, and then we have an engineer because I record the uh, narration. Um, I'd say about a week. About a okay. Week. About a week for each piece. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, they're really, really nicely put together. Thank you. Um, have you won any awards for, for any of them? We have. We got oh, the, um, let's see, it is called the, we got the 2000, 2017 Oral History in a Nonprofit, I'm sorry, in a Non-Print Format Award from the Oral History Association. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. So we, we are an award-winning podcast. So what recommendations do you have for those of us who are just kind of getting started with podcasting? Um, as a podcaster or things that you want to listen to? 
How about as a podcaster? Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I would just do some research into what, what it takes to do a podcast. Um, I have basic advice, which is to use good equipment, which is not expensive anymore, um, to work in a space where the sound sounds great. I use my, since COVID hit, I use my closet, my guest room closet, and it's all padded. I made it padded so I could record in there. And I use the internal microphone on my iPhone to record. Um, so the key is to be in a good space. Um, um, do your homework as you have for this interview. So prepare in advance, know who you're interviewing. Um, and also have the capacity to edit because you often want to edit down what you have to something shorter so that you get the essence of what you're doing. And in terms of podcasts that I like, one of my favorites is called The Log Books, L-O-G Books. It's a UK um, LGBTQ history podcast. Um, another favorite is LGBTQ and A, which is done by my friend Jeffrey Masters. They're contemporary interviews with LGBTQ people. Um, an old a podcast that's no longer in production, but it's still out there, is called Nancy. I recommend that one. Um, and then there are a lot of other, uh, a lot of, a lot of other LGBTQ oriented podcasts out there. But I also listen to other podcasts. One of my favorites is Ninety Nine Percent Invisible. It's about um, design and cities and urban environments. I just love that podcast. They always do interesting, interesting things. And Radio Lab is another favorite that's really interesting. There's a history podcast I love called Throughline. It's an NPR podcast. It's really terrific. Um, I, of course, recommend my uh, other podcast, Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust. There's a new podcast called Translash Podcast, and it's contemporary news through a trans lens. Uh, my friend Imara Jones produces that. And then a queer serial, that I, uh, also a terrific podcast about LGBTQ history. Very cool. I got like a nice long list. So when I'm finished um, the rest of your episodes, I will definitely check them out before have, your next season starts. One guilty pleasure, the Dolly Parton, uh, Dolly Parton's America. Okay. Just love, 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 love that podcast. Fantastic. That's awesome. I'll have to, we'll check that out. We were um, just in uh, Tennessee this summer, actually. Ah. Checking out a national park, Smoky Mountains. But um pass by um she's like all over the place down there obviously yes yes (laughs) the you had you had mentioned that you started quite small at first with your podcast um so how did it how did it kind of um you with the you said you had five weeks to kind of prep everything and then did you have like the website launched and everything within that five weeks as well yes we launched the website and the podcast within those five weeks we were crazy um, yeah. and what, what helped us grow, it's very hard to get attention in the podcast space because there are now like 750,000 podcasts. Mm-hmm. There are only 250,000 when we got started four years ago. Wow. Um, I say only, that's a lot of podcasts, but we were, were reviewed positively and recommended, um, by some really influential people that helped a lot. I was interviewed on other podcasts, which is how people discovered us. We were featured on one of the podcast platforms. Um, and that got us a lot of attention and it grew from there. So then a lot of word of mouth, we've got, a t- we've gotten a ton of media attention over the last few years. Um, mm-hmm. there was also nobody in our space. We, we were the, uh, the first, uh, LGBTQ history podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, it seems like there's a couple out there now I was looking. There are a few. Yeah. 
they're mm-hmm. shitty. I think we're the best, but I'm <laughs> slightly slightly prejudiced. Well, yeah, I mean, you should be. It's, it, I mean, it is phenomenal, um, and I really like that you put the uh, the transcripts and everything on there too, so you can kind of read along if that's your preference or yes, and also for people who are hearing impaired. Yes, yes. Um, one of my, yeah, you know, one of my making gay history fans um, in Russia translates our uh, uh, transcripts into Russian, so that her friends can uh, who don't speak English and people across Russia can follow the podcast without understanding English. Wow, that's so cool. That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. I love it when things kind of get crowdsourced, you know, like yes. here I'll translate yeah. this or you know, yeah. and then gets more traction. That's that's fantastic. Um so one last one last question. Sure. Um since you are such a uh a history buff, what are what are you reading now? Is there anything exciting that you can recommend? Uh I'm not such a history buff, you'd be surprised. Um but I am you seem reading. like it though, because you. <laughs> <laughs> I know my history, so I'm I'm rereading a book called "And the Band Played On," which is uh, a book about the AIDS crisis. It was written in the late seven, sorry, the late '80s, and does an incredible job of documenting how the AIDS crisis unfolded. Um, there is one huge flaw in that book. Uh, there's a character called Patient Zero, who allegedly was the person who spread AIDS across the U.S. That was made up. The person existed, but he wasn't Patient Zero. Um, there's a documentary I recommend watching if you read And the Band Played On. It's called Killing Patient Zero. It's, uh, it it uh, debunks the myth of, of Patient Zero. So I recommend And the Band Played On. Um, okay. I recommend another book that I'm just reading now called Fear City, um, which is about New York City and the financial crisis in the 1970s. I'm involved in a, in a campaign, a mayor, mayoral campaign here in New York City. And so I'm doing some research on the past. Um, I have some gay history favorite books. Um, Written, my, one of my favorites is written by a woman named Lillian Faderman. She's the real deal. She's a real historian. I'm not. I'm a, I'm a citizen historian, a really an accidental historian. She wrote a book called The Gay Revolution. Mm-hmm. And that book really does an incredible job of covering the history of the LGBTQ civil rights mo- movement. So I recommend her book. I recommend David Carter's book on Stonewall. It's called Stonewall. Mm-hmm. It's the definitive book about the Stonewall uprising and sets it in context. Um, and also my friend Linda Hirschman wrote a book called Victory, um, really a social a look at the social history of the LGBTQ civil rights movement and how it fits into the movements, to the other um, social justice movements in, in U.S. history. Mm-hmm. So I know I just said that I don't read history, but I, I, I guess yeah, I do. See? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I do have some interest in, 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 in history books. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'll definitely have to check some of those out. I would love to see a more inclusive uh, history curriculum in our own, um, in our own County. So well, Maryland is working on it. Yes, they are. And yeah. Montgomery County has definitely made some major strides. Um, uh, but you know, we're, it's, it's, it's a process. We'll get it there. Is. It is. You will. It will take time. I mean, as you know, from curriculum materials take years to work their way into the classroom. Yes. Yes, they do. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us uh, this afternoon. I've really enjoyed um, your stories and um, getting to know you and um, it's phenomenal. So I hope that everybody listening is uh, going to take a look at um, at Eric's podcast and um, the Gay History mm-hmm. Podcast. And um, Yes, and let, me, and let me tell you where you can find me. So it's the podcast, yes. the podcast is called MakingGayHistory.com. 
you, I'm sorry, it's Making Gay History. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find it at makinggayhistory.com. And that's where we have also all of our archival materials and episode notes related to every episode. Um, you can follow us, and I hope you follow us, on Twitter at Making Gay History, on Instagram at Making Gay History Podcast, and also we're on Facebook. So find us wherever you can find, wherever you find anything, you'll find us. And my other podcast is called Those Who Were There. And you can find that podcast wherever you get your podcasts, um, or you can go to thosewhowarethere.org, where you can also find archival photos and episode notes. And that's called Those Were There, Voices from the Holocaust. Cool. And I, do you think other, I mean, I'm guessing other educators are kind of building that in also with our curriculum, with the, the Holocaust stories? Yes, yes. The Holocaust is taught widely. Um, and they are going to start using, or they've already started using uh, um, episodes from that podcast uh, for class use. And um, do you have, um, I didn't, I don't think I saw that on your website where you would have a curriculum. Actual I, curriculum. Yes, there, yeah, um, not on, I have links on my website, but uh, if you go to um, History Unerased website, it's unerased.org, that's U-N-E-R-A-S-E-D.org. Um, that organization, which we partner with, has lots and lots of resources for educators uh, for teaching LGBTQ inclusive American history, particularly focused on eighth. Well, they do K through 12, but they've got a lot for eighth and 11th, uh, eighth and 11th grade American history. Oh, fantastic. I'm definitely going to be promoting this and passing it along. Great. Great. Um, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your interest in the subject. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say thank you, too. Um, this was a very enlightening conversation. A pleasure, Uma. I'm very glad to meet you and, and you, Danielle, as well. If you've experienced loss through suicide and need resources or someone to talk to, please reach out to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention at www.afsp.org. If you or someone you know is experiencing thoughts of suicide, please call Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. If you are a young person in crisis, feeling suicidal, or in need of a judgment-free place to talk, call the Trevor Project Lifeline at 1-866-488-7386. Again, that's 1-866-488-7386. If you are transgender and need a lifeline, please call the Trans Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. The music featured at the start and end of our podcast is Work by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license.